It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs. By the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Hello again, everyone. Part one of our two-part conversation with Nathan Mendy of Boxer Works is on tap and... We've got another Tech Talk with William Plam from Boxer 2 Valve. This week, top-end reseal tips. That's our topic. However, before we dig into that, a few bits of news and notes as we normally do here. First, a continued thanks to everyone for sending photos and stories of their Survivor bikes. We've had some great submissions, and please keep them coming. Drop us a line, airheads247 at hotmail.com. As we've mentioned before, this is a project we're working on and plan to have out later in the year. Another thing in the works, we're working on creating a searchable database for BMW service bulletins. This is for the R-Series bikes from 1970 through the early 90s. This is a big task, as you might imagine, but one I think that'll be of some great value to everyone. So stay tuned for more on this later in the year. Please keep our sponsors in mind when you're enjoying the program. We are committed to keeping our content here free. No subscriptions, no membership fees, no paywalls. So the easiest way to support our ongoing efforts here is to consider supporting our sponsors. Our membership drive with BMW MOA is going along well, but we still have a little ways to go to reach our 200 new member goal. Please check the description section of our episodes for information on the free, that's right, free one-year digital membership with the MOA. This is good for listeners across the globe, so if you can hear the program, the offer is valid for you. Speaking of across the globe, want to say a hearty hello and thank you to listeners in Adelaide, Australia. Thanks for tuning in and holding fast as the number one city for listens to the program in January 2023. All right, Nathan Mendy has a lifetime of experience as a motorcycle mechanic and airhead enthusiast. His shop, Boxer Works, in Watkinsville, Georgia, specializes in all things 247. In part one of our conversation, we'll dig into Nathan's early days and introduction to BMWs. We'll discuss the effect of bring a trailer on airhead values. And the big news in this program, I think, is Nathan is now introducing a replica GS Paris Dakar tank, that's the nine gallon steel tank for monolever and paralever GS bikes. So stay tuned for that a little bit later in the show. Off we go, Nathan Mendy on the Airhead 247 podcast. Okay, while we're on the line with Nathan Mendy from, uh, Mendy from Boxer Works in Athens, Georgia. And Nathan, let me start out by saying... Watkins, Watkinsville, Georgia, but that's close. Watkinsville, thank you. Okay. No, no, uh, problem. no let, problem. Let me start by saying I've admired your work uh, from afar on boxerworks.com. Uh, I think I purchased a 
uh, Paralever solo seat uh, luggage porter from you years ago uh, when you were manufacturing those. But I appreciate you taking some time to visit with us today. Um, first thing I'd, I'd like to go over a little bit of your bio, uh, bio. Biological, uh, yeah, bi- yeah, bi- biological information. Yeah, gotcha. <laughs> Some of your bio, but um, uh, when I uh, first rang you up here, uh, you said you were working on one of your own bikes. So what's going on in the shop today? Uh, I'm the only one here on Saturdays. I sweep the floor and dump the trash and put parts away. And uh, usually Saturday is kind of a social day. Last week I had all kinds of interesting folks in here. Um, and I don't expect to get much done on Saturday, and I usually just work on my own stuff or service it or get get it packed up for the Sunday ride. I usually ride Sundays up in the mountains. So um, I had a guy pick up today, and a couple people come in for a couple little things here and there, but I don't schedule anything. Saturday's kind of like a pickup day. Sure, sure. Anything uh, interesting or of note uh, on the motorcycle lifts uh, that you're working on uh, besides your own bikes? Well, we're just started on another one of these dual-sport stick-built bikes that we did for a fellow last year from Germany who's going from Patagonia, actually from Portland, Oregon and Patagonia, this guy named Newt. Uh, And then we just did the one for Bill. And now we're doing one for a guy named Jonathan in Jersey. Jonathan's uh, worked for Spielberg. He's a film editor. And him and his son, I think, are going to Alaska. His son just bought a R100 GSPD. And uh, Jonathan came down six months ago, took his bike apart, but he doesn't have time to come back and put it together. So we're going to put it back together for him. So we're working on that. We just finished a, another R80 ST that a customer bought from us. Uh, somebody started turning an ST into a GS, and we made it into a tubeless tire rear in the rear, which we do pretty regularly. It's a modified wheel and swap rear drives. But usually when we make a bike tubeless tire, we take the entire front end off an R100 GS. This is the first one we've done where we left the ST front end on and uh, built some spacers in a, in a uh, an adapter for a four-piston Brembo and put the left the ST front end on it and put the tubeless wheel on it. We're trying to reduce the price of making things tubeless. Tubeless is the biggest problem people have who travel worldwide is tire, flat tires. Yeah. And that's the, that, that's the thing that gets most folks. You know, for years I carried, you know, a 21 in the front for the front 21 tube and an 18-inch tube and a bead breaker and a, uh, tubes, you know. And it's just got to be ridiculous. So I came up with this back in 2012 and started doing a bunch of stuff to my own bike, which is kind of carried through to what we're uh, what we're doing now. So, uh, but we, you know, we've always got interesting stuff. Sidecar, we do a lot of sidecars. Um, so anything that has to do with an airhead. Um, so at this point, there's probably 13 or 14 bikes in the shop. We've got nine lifts. A couple of them on the floor. I got a 56 R50. We're finishing uh, two two R80GSs. We're finishing uh, two we just bought that we're just getting started on. Um, you know, just regular uh, regular airhead for us. Regular airhead stuff. We're 1950 to 1995 is pretty much all we work on. We do a little bit of dual sport stuff. One of my buys is a KTM guy, so we do some KTM work and you know. Any dual sport stuff. We like dual sport riders, so we'll we'll prostitute ourselves. To <laughs> I mean, we're you know we're so far behind. We're we're eighteen months easily out. Eighteen months. Yeah, so, that seems I mean, we, that know. seems to be the general consensus of uh, a lot of guys I talk to who are running their own shops these days. Is 
uh, yeah, uh, uh, at least a year or so of work uh, that they're looking at in front of them. Well, well, you know, some of it, of course, is because you can't get help. I'm I'm fortunate in the sense that my two uh, eBay guys, Mikey, who's uh, Gold Stroke Motors, has been with me about five years, and this Garrett has been with me about a year and a half. And Mikey came in to help us with eBay stuff. We've got a full, you know, we do a lot of eBay. We sell a lot of parts on eBay. And uh, then Mikey really wanted to start bending wrenches, but it took us a year to find someone who we felt comfortable with to take his place. We found a great guy in Garrett. Mikey took to it like a fish to water. He's getting real good at what he's doing. Uh, he's able to take a bike out and ride it and come back and tell you whether it needs a bigger main jet or whatever. He's He listens real well, and he's a smart kid. Garrett's a smart kid, too, and now he's bending wrenches. So now our eBay stuff is suffering. Now we're trying to find an eBay guy. So at least over the last two years, I've been able to kind of get a little more work done by taking guys I already knew and I already you know, didn't have to reintroduce myself to or take a chance on or whatever. Um, so, but part of the reason we're behind was because of lack of, of labor. The other part is because I guess people during this pandemic just decided that uh, it's a shit to get off the pot if they got bikes that are sitting around. They've been sitting for years. You know, we call them barn fresh. Um, they bring them in and they want them fixed. And we tell them, you know, we can do whatever you want on your airhead as long as you're not in a hurry. And they say, well, been sitting in my garage for 10 years. My wife is tired of banging the door on it. So, uh, can I leave it with you? Sure. So, uh, you know, it's uh, stuff's just it's just coming right and left. And I think, to be honest with you, I noticed that one of the things you asked me about in the, the little questions you sent me was about Bring a Trailer. Yeah. I think one of the things Bring a Trailer has done, I mean, Bring a Trailer's done a bunch of things, both good and bad. But one of the things it's done is it's in, it's introduced these bikes to a lot of people who really didn't know what they were. They, and so they look at them and they see these shiny bikes. And a lot of the guys who are paying a lot of money for these uh, these uh, motorcycles or car guys, buying a bike for twenty or thirty thousand dollars is pocket change when you're paying a million dollars for a you know for a McLaren or a, you know some some Penzgau or some something like that. So I think they've kind of looked at it and they're looking at motorcycles now. And people who have these bikes are seeing what they're going for. Uh, you know, an R80GS, which has always been a popular bike, but I mean, three or four years ago, you could buy an R80GS for $2,500, 3, $3,500 that ran. You know, now, uh, one sold four months ago on Bring a Trailer for 36 Uh It's not uncommon to see them go for 25 Now, these are bikes that have been gone through and they're shiny. They got the big tank, the solo seat and all. But shit, this is, this is a 40 year old motorcycle. <laughs> and and it's going for stupid money. So so all these things have contributed to it, uh, to to people bringing us stuff. Um, you know, bring a trailer is great depending on which side of the county you're on. If you're selling, it's phenomenal. If you're buying, you know, maybe not so much. If you're trying to buy a bike to make nice, uh, it doesn't help you either. You know, we started, uh, we've been doing this GS stuff now, stuff now for a long time. We started buying the ST, which they only made for two years, uh, 82 and 83, the street version of the GS. Uh, and then we became a, uh, a victim of our own circumstance because we started buying all the ones we could get our hands on. And then people started realizing what was going on, and the price of them has gone up to where I just saw one listed for, for $11,000 from a dealer in Florida on Bring a Trailer. I don't think he got it, but the fact that he's actually thinking about 11 uh, for a bike that, you know, I was paying $875,000 for three years ago. Uh, and, you know, now I got to pay 
five for one that's in pieces. I just got a good deal on one for 1800 bucks, no dry shaft, and a bunch of stuff missing. Not a big deal for us. We take them apart anyway, but, uh, you know, so I'm watching bring a trailer, change prices. I'm watching people learn about bikes. I'm watching people decide that it's time to fix their bike, maybe drive it, and then maybe try to get good money out of it. Yeah, so. you, you know, you bring up a great point there. A couple other guys I've talked to, who do similar work uh, have mentioned the same thing. The price of a quote-unquote core bike, uh, which in your case uh, you were mentioning the ST there, uh, has really skyrocketed as a result of that. Uh, guys who do R90Ss uh, or guys who do, you know, like you say, uh, first production run uh, G slash S, we're seeing those prices go up. Are you also seeing, as, uh, as I was wondering there uh, in some of the things I sent you, uh, you're seeing these bikes also priced out of range a little bit uh, at, at uh, in some instances for, you know, kind of an everyman, uh, working man's bike. Even the those prices are starting to inch up. Well, you know, we did uh, a little over a year ago, um, Mikey brought the idea to us that we would do what we called economy scramblers. Scramblers are hot and they have been for a while. Um, we had a lot of stuff laying around in various states of disrepair, and so a lot of the stuff we either had no money in or didn't have a lot of money in. And so we started building these bikes. We took an R R65, we took a R75 slash seven, we took a R75 slash six. We took a bunch of bikes and made them run. And Mikey put his uh, his touch on it. You know, one of the things about Mikey and Garrett is. You know, they're in their 30s. I'm 73, so we're, we're, we're looking at a totally different way of looking at things. I didn't even know what Instagram was till three years ago when Mikey said, you know, uh, we should do something on IG. And I said, oh, that's great, but what is IG? So the point being here is that we started doing that. We started selling bikes for, uh, you know, $3,500, $4,000. We actually did a deal where we picked up a Monoshock R80, uh, 85, from a customer in Florida. He dropped it off and said, here. You know, and, and and we paid him for his trip, and we gave him what he wanted. It was a running bike. We'd serviced it, so we stuck a note up that day, and we said, if you've never owned an Airhead before, if you're the first one, you could have this for 2000 bucks. If you've owned one but sold it and regret it, you could have it for 2500 And if you had a couple, you still have a couple you want, you could have it for three. Well, a local girl bought it. She showed up with two grand and bought it from us. She still has it. So we, we tried to, and we continue to try to, get things out to people. We're in a, we're in a college town, next, college, next town over is University of Georgia. So we try to get things that people can afford because we like, people to be enthusiasts we like them to get introduced to them you know one of the things that harley's had a lot of problems with is all the harley riders are buying rocking chairs and uh and retirement homes now whereas the airhead shit i mean you know people in their 30s love the bike it's a it's a good investment it's a dependable transportation and it's a classic looking bike and, and if you you can insure it through haggerty for nothing you know my my vintage cars are insured through haggerty for next to nothing and then we have to be 20 years old so um we've been trying to make trying to counter what that's doing because there's no doubt that it's it's pricing the people out. I tell you what's kind of interesting also is that so two things have happened also because of that. Number one is that one of the things that's not been great. So I'm seeing more and more people taking bikes completely apart that are good motorcycles and selling the parts. I've been buying a bunch of parts for the R100GS. I bought wheels and front end uh, from a guy who took the entire bike apart. Wasn't anything wrong with it. 
He just took it apart because even if he paid $5,000 for it, uh, a good set of wheels and a front end uh, average retail is probably two, a little over two. He had a whole bunch of stuff. And so he's taking them apart, which I kind of don't like to see, but I, I understand that. And then interestingly enough, overseas, I deal with a bunch of people in Germany, they're selling that stuff for next to nothing, even yeah. with shipping. Yeah, the price. wheels and stuff. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, so um, I had a long conversation with a guy in uh, Germany. A customer came in who bought a PD from me, and he wanted to turn it into a model ever. And so we called this two guys, one in England, one in Germany, who do this. And we had a conversation with them. And they said, well, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, you know, we take these bikes and we make them into tubeless tire bikes because, you know, people get flats in the woods. He goes, oh, that's interesting. He said, overseas here, nobody wants tubeless tires. That's why we sell them so cheap. Nobody wants the wheels. Everybody wants regular tube tires. And I go, well, that makes no sense. And he went, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense that that doesn't make any sense. So I, I don't get it. You know, I don't understand why why there's such a disparity. But uh, it's crazy. I'm buying most of my used parts now uh, over from Germany, uh, and the prices are good. Guys call me on the phone. They're they're nice folks. They're you know we we do a bunch of business in Germany, and we're paying less for them, even with shipping than we can buy them for in this country. This country is always the one that costs the most. To, buy anything yeah you know you bring up a good point i've been doing the same thing there are a number of uh sellers on ebay uh who are willing more than willing to ship to the united states and oftentimes the list prices are you know a third or sometimes half of what you would pay here uh you work in shipping you're still getting the same part uh, for still a few dollars less yeah and then this is interesting if i want to send Something to to Germany, for instance. Um, let's say I want to send the front end to Germany. He can sell me. He can send me the same front end for fifty dollars. It costs me two hundred dollars. If it goes from Europe to here, it's cheap. If it goes from here to Europe, it's four times as much money. It's it's and so it almost doesn't make sense. I, I, we sell stuff overseas, but most of the stuff goes to to eBay, you know, International Shipping Center in Kentucky. We we wash our hands of it. They take care of that. We just ship it to them, and they, they do it from there. We do send stuff to, you know, we do ship directly to places, but half of the stuff we send never gets there, so we just kind of quit doing it. But it, it's astronomical, so that's another one I don't get. Yeah, so. shipping Yeah, shipping prices are crazy these days. Uh, I, I've noticed the same thing, uh, and that that's a whole other story. Well, you've been... Going over a lot of topics uh, that I, I want to dig in a little bit more on, specifically uh, some of sure. the some of the modifications, and we'll get to that here in a minute. But I want to backtrack a little bit, and you know, let's just kind of start a little bit earlier in the in the timeline here for you. What got you into bikes uh, as a kid or a young man? Uh, well, first off, I, my dad had a Harley after World War II, and he got hit by a bus in Chicago. He had one leg shorter than the other, and if you even said anything that began with the word M that ended in cycle, my mother would smack me. <laughs> You're not getting a motorcycle. Forget it. And so my dad worked was a truck driver, but he worked uh, on, on Saturdays at a place called Randy's Garage down the street. My dad grew up in Hell's Kitchen, Brooklyn, and his dad had a garage, and he grew up in, in that environment. And in Randy's Garage, when you walked in the door, were eight slash twos all lined up so you would see the front wheel of one and then the front wheel of the other, all kind of like a little Chevron. Uh, and I would go in and, you know, 
would sit on them and they'd throw shit at me and say, get off the bikes and all. But that was my, my first introduction to seeing them was the fact that uh, they were in this place. And then, of course, I wasn't allowed to have a bike. So as soon as I got out of the house at 17 and went to college, uh, I traded a radio my sister gave me for a little Bridgestone 175, and that was in 1967, and the rest, as they say, is history. So then it wasn't until uh, I ended up in Ohio a couple years later, went to work for my first dealer in Athens, Ohio, a place called Hawk Cycle Sales. And then... Tell, uh, okay, hang on, hang on. Let me yeah. let me stop you there. So uh, I, I was uh, in Athens, Ohio, not at that time, but uh, I went to OU for four years, uh, and gra- gra- yeah, graduated in four years, un- unlike a lot of my cohorts at the time. But uh, so Hawk Cycle. So uh, Hawk Cycle Sales, Charlie Hawk. And interestingly enough, Charlie, I mean, how much how much of a story you want here? Uh, I'm all ears. OK, so we'll go back a little bit. So I worked yeah. for Charlie. Uh, Charlie was a kind of an ISDT rider. He was a dual sport. He was a motocrosser, an enduro racer. Um, and I went to work for Charlie, and I had this uh, girlfriend named Debbie, and Charlie left it after Debbie for years, and Charlie was married with six kids, but he wasn't happy with his wife, and he said to me, if you ever leave town and you leave her behind, I'm divorcing my wife and moving in with her, which is exactly what happened. I left, she stayed, he got divorced, and, and, and away he went. In the meantime, um, Charlie... I saw Charlie about 10 years ago. He passed through here because Deb was living on the other side of Atlanta, and he was bringing her some furniture. Um, and he passed away, like I said, about eight or nine years ago. Um, and we do uh, – we have a booth at Barber every year, and a guy from Athens, Ohio, come, uh, and they do a memorial uh, motocross, a memorial off-road ride for Charlie. And two years ago they showed up. I got, a, I got took a picture of the shirt that they have, the memorial – the Charlie Hawk Memorial Ride. Charlie was a great guy, really interesting guy, and a great rider. Uh, and uh, he was my first real dealer I worked for. Uh, then I traveled around for a while on, on an old airhead, uh, worked in the oil field, traveled around the world, and then ended up back in Vermont. And somewhere in between there, I worked for a place called Freeman Cycle Sales in Beverly, Mass. I had a foreign car business in Kittery, Maine, Kittery Foreign Auto. Those guys, I closed it. Those guys ran into me. They hired me. I worked for them for a little over a year, uh, and then I headed on out again. And then I sort of became a mechanic for BMW again back in the 90s because there's a car dealer here, and BMW, when they opened, liked the car dealer so much, they gave him a, a motorcycle dealership. None of the guys in there wanted to work on bikes. I was working out of my garage, so they sent me to school in Daytona to get certified because I had to have a certified tech. And then they would take the bikes, would be dropped off at them. They'd put them in the back of the truck and take them to my garage out in the middle of a subdivision. I'd fix the bikes, and they'd come get them and bring them back. And uh, <laughs> that, was, wow. that was my last, my last dealership uh, deal. But uh, I had a Ducati dealership here, too. I was level two Ducati certified for a while and all. But that's another story, and Ducati doesn't make it, didn't at the time make it anything I wanted to ride. They, they do make the Scrambler now, but I raced Ducatis for a long time, road raced Ducatis for a long time, and, and some BMWs, but that's another story, too. That's why I asked you where, how, where <laughs> yeah. do we want to go, because I, I got a lot of shit. Uh, yeah, I guess so. It. So, yeah. I mean, I'm going yeah. to I'm gonna just maybe paraphrase this and say it sounds like uh, sort of starting in 1970, uh, when you mentioned Hawks there in Athens, Ohio, from there. Uh, and those uh, subsequent years, uh, basically sort of an itinerant mechanic. Is that a fair way to categorize well, it? Well, you know, uh, I left, I was working in Vermont, 
and I had my uh, R69S in Vermont, and uh, I t- got tired of riding in the wintertime. I was with a buddy who he had a, a pre-70 bike, and so we drove to Louisiana, and we worked in the oil field for a while. And those guys, all oh, my friends left sooner than I did. I stayed until I let me ask a little more money. And I spent about 10 years on my bike. At that time, it was a conversion I bought from a friend of mine uh, that he had built. He was working with me down there. Um, and so I spent 10 years just driving around. Um, and in fact, I came to Athens, Georgia on my conversion with my carpentry toolbox on the back and I built houses for a long time. And I worked for the historic Charleston foundation in Charleston for a while. And then I came back here and did a bunch of building and renovating and so on and so forth. So, uh, I, I really started working for myself when I was in Charleston. I had a Butler building behind my house and I had a little shop. And when I came back here, I turned my garage into a shop, and it was called uh, Athens uh, BMW Repair, Motorcycle Repair of Athens. And while the local dealer was sending me to school, BMW sent me a cease and desist letter saying you can't mm. say call yourself BMW Motorcycle Repair. Yeah. You can say Nathan's Shop, specializing in BMWs, but you can't use our name and your name. So, uh, and that was in you know. 95 probably and i started this business turned it called it boxer works started this business in 95 and you know did it out of my house and bought a burnt down house fixed the house built a shop and bought a lot and moved and built this building and so on and so forth so um i don't know itinerant person probably more than itinerant. <laughs> I, i'll say itinerant tradesman let's just go with that because yeah, yeah, it's fine, that's fine. <laughs> okay you'll you'll accept that Since this program launched in March of 2022, we've heard from a number of you telling us how much you enjoy it. So first off, thanks for tuning in and thanks for supporting us. To help continue our efforts here, we've partnered with the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who coincidentally are also fans and supporters of this program. The MOA is conducting a membership drive over the next several months. Their goal to add 200 new members And to help them do that, we're offering a free one-year digital membership for Airhead 247 listeners. The membership includes discounts at hotels, their monthly magazine, great deals on roadside assistance programs, and a fantastic network of BMW owners that share your passion. To sign up, visit 247.bmwmoa.org. Complete the online form and use the activation code AIRHEAD247. 247 or go to the description section in this podcast we've popped a direct link right there we want to say thank you to the bmw motorcycle owners of america and thank you to you for supporting our efforts here with the podcast where we'll continue to bring you unique history and insight into the world of the 247 airhead that website once again for your free membership 247.bmwmoa.org Use the activation code AIRHEAD247. Nathan, I want to ask you, uh, you have come out with with what you're terming is a replica tank, a nine-gallon Paris-Dakar steel tank uh, for the R80 uh, GS, which also ostensibly would fit the later Paralever uh, GS bikes. As well as the ST. Yes. So this is big news. Tell me about the process, and then I've got some follow-up questions. 
Okay, so we used to sell a lot of these tanks, and most of the builds that we did for you know World Traveler people, they wanted the 8.9 gallon PD tank, and then a couple of years ago it just disappeared, and so um, I decided that I wanted to try to make them. Seeing as even if I don't sell them to anybody else, I want them for myself. So I uh, went ahead and found somebody who could uh, 3D pre 3D print it for me, and then make a reproduction tank. And then I had to find somebody who could build it. Um, so that took me several months. Now let me jump in here. Let me sure. jump in. So when you say 3D print, were you rendering it in a plastic mold or something like that first? Well, yeah. So we gave them a new tank. They put uh, a million little tiny dots on it. And then they run the scanner over it, and it makes a copy. And then from the copy, they put it in a machine and it makes the plastic replica of exactly what they copied. Now, just out of curiosity. I, I don't know a whole lot about the, you know, the nuances. Sure. Now, just out of curiosity, though, was it a solid piece of plastic? Did you look at it that way? Uh, Do you recall? Uh, I, uh, I don't think it was. Re recalling, this is pretty light. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was. It was done in two pieces. I see. Okay. So they do the one, one half, and then they do the other half. Gotcha. And then they, they put it together. Okay, so you've got the, the plastic uh, 3D rendering of the tank. Right. And now, I, I, now you've got to find somebody who can actually cobble this uh, together. Well, I found somebody, yeah, I found somebody who could build it, and it took me a while to get uh, to get everything squared away. They sent me the first copy probably six months ago. And they nailed the outside. They had the outside perfect, but they didn't look at any of my instructions and any of my diagrams and interior pictures about a baffle. And this is a nine-gallon tank. You can't just have gas sloshing around in there. They put some stupid baffle in the front, and I said, no, what's this? That's the baffle you wanted. No, I sent you pictures. I did diagrams with dotted lines. So they sent me another tank that wasn't right. Then they sent me a third tank that almost had the right baffle, but they only tacked it in. And I said, you know, you're getting there. And finally, they came out with the right baffle, the way that we sent it to them, the pictures we sent, and it was well secured. Uh, and meanwhile, they had a little, couple of little fitment issues. They got all that stuff squared away. Um, they used the, it's got the correct bayonet type mount uh, for the gas filler. Right. You know, the ST had yep. the screw in and the other. So this is the correct, and it has the correct bungs on the bottom for the stock um, BMW uh, fuel taps, and we use the 90-degree ones on there because so, they're close to the cylinders. So, And then it takes the regular clasp in the back, the regular distance rubber in the back. Yep. Um, you know, it, it takes all those pieces. Let, let, um, me jump so in and, probably, let me jump in and ask you about the baffle. So uh, I've, I've probably known one was in there. It makes sense. But tell me about, for those who haven't really looked inside of their, of their tank, uh, I've got one. Uh, how, how is that baffle situated in there? Well, if you look down inside... Um, and you're facing the front of the tank and you look towards the back, you'll see a plate uh, on an angle, and you'll see the center, hunt, uh, the center uh, hump in there where it goes around the main part of the frame, and you'll see that there's a, a piece of plate that's welded at the bottom um, and then comes around, and some of them are welded on the edge of the hump in the center, and some of them are not. None of them are welded to the top of the tank. They're only welded to the inside on the bottom, and then they're secured uh, on either side of the, the hump. The hump's about three, three and a half inches tall. The part that when you put it on your, your bike, it slides on right. over the main 
Right. So, and it's made out of a fairly heavy material, so it doesn't move. And so, when you're riding, uh, and you know, it's a lot of gas to slosh around. It it's is, interesting. Yeah. If you buy a six-gallon GS tank, it doesn't have a baffle in it. Mm-hmm. But if you once once you buy anything bigger than that. Um, it does, unless you buy one of the 11-gallon service tanks. So much of that is down below the, the, the center of the tank that it doesn't slosh around. It's like two little compartments, and the top compartment's a few enough gallons that it doesn't slosh. But anything else you buy um, will have something that big, um, except you know, the, the Heinrich tanks don't. But, again, a lot of that's down low. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, the factory built them that way, and we wanted them built that way. And then they, when we got the one that had the right um, baffle in it, um, I had talked to them about coating the inside, and they said, uh, oh, this is a gas-resistant primer. And they said, nah, that's not going to fly. <laughs> I need the real primer, and I'd like it to be the same color, the same maroon mm-hmm. as the stock tank. And so I just got three tanks from them last week. Uh, they fit really well. They did all we asked them to make a few adjustments. They coated them. In fact, we just took one out of the box, and I can barely breathe in here from whatever the material is <laughs> that they put inside the sealer. But it's nicely sealed, and it's and it's the right sealer inside. And we put the, we mounted all three of them. They all fit on pretty well. Uh, we have noticed on all these tanks, even the original tanks, that uh, at least fifty or sixty percent of the time we have to add some little rubber shims to right. the two down tubes. Yep. Because once they get full, they rock back. I don't care. You know, you got nine gallons. And oh, yeah. Six gallons. That's fifty-four pounds worth of fuel. It's ridiculous. So, yeah. Right, right, and so same thing here. We what we've we've noticed that normally the R100GS, the distance rubber in the back, is a one piece with two little cutouts that slides over the top of the frame. The R80GS and ST are two separate pieces, a right and a left. That's right, and they fit in between. But what we figured out is what makes sense to us at this point is we took the distance rubbers from the R80GS uh, and we stuck them up inside until we got what we wanted, and we just. Traced the traced it around the tank, cut them off, and glued them on the inside of the tank. We won't continue to do that. We we haven't figured out how we want to do that. We're going to sell them to people with those rubbers. Mm-hmm. We're also in the process. We made most people aren't aware of the fact that when you put this tank on, originally the factory made a little tiny, about an inch and a half stop that went on the bottom triple clamp. There's a stop on the tank, that, and some oh. have little screws to adjust it. Because if you, on some bikes, this is interesting. Some bikes you can get away with not doing it. I think the R100s, because the because of the of the PD tanks, which were nine gallons, yeah, those those were a little different. But if you go to the R80ST and the GSs, they weren't ever designed. Even though they they, they ran that bike and the parodied the car, they they just didn't come out with them. They they had the part, um, but it was very obscure, and we had a hard time actually finding one. We had made a couple ourselves. Then I found one online, and we and we we bought it just to look at it. So we've made a pattern, and depending on what you're putting it on, we'll give you the stop. And some of those lower trees have a hole in them, and some of them are solid. So the ones that have a hole in them, you can probably go ahead and either put uh, a split pin in there, or depending on what you have, and if you have the bike apart, you can probably tap it and, and put a 10 by one bolt and hold it on. That's the let me say that, that that's impressive because I'm glad you thought of that. I was going to ask you that exact question because I've noticed that I have R80 GS and I did two things when I first noticed that. One is I bent it, and it always seemed to happen 
for me with just the right turn signal hitting the tank. So what I used to do was just bend the turn signal up a little bit uh, from center, from uh, horizontal, I should say, bend it up a little bit and it wouldn't bump into the tank. Then later, in lieu of the spacer uh, or the little split pin that you're talking about, I just simply uh, glued and epoxied a little piece of rubber on the turn stop uh, on that side so it didn't go all the way to the tank. So kudos to you for addressing that. And uh, that's interesting. I didn't know there was actually a, a factory uh, part there. Uh, to... You know, I don't even think it's on the fish. Yeah, no, um, I, I would have noticed it, yeah. Right. And so let me mention this, too. Your top directional... Uh, arms are really flimsy. Those things are so thin. Oh, yeah. Where they, well, yeah. So what we did was we made a bracket, and we dropped those directionals down right where the uh, sliders are. We, we, we made a little little three-sided bracket that bolts through one of the bolts that clamps around the, around the tube and also fits the rubber. And though it will still... If you don't put that on, it will still touch the tank. They're much more robust and they're much more out of the way. Uh, we think they look a little bit better, and they they take a lot of clumsy shit off the top. Sure. And and they're just they're so brittle. You know, the, the R80GS had them, um, and then they made similar ones for the R100s. Um, but they had a bigger hole in the center because the hole for the center plug on the down tube was bigger. It's a bigger, bigger. Yeah, it's some of those, some yeah. of those, you can just look at them and they'll and they'll bend. I mean, you're right; they're, they're pretty bad. So, right. and so the first time you fall over, they break. Yeah, it's, in fact, yeah, and you know they come in all the time with some kind of you know homemade homemade job. And oh yeah, that oh yeah. So, so, We've changed that, and um, you know I can probably send you a photo of what we're doing on those to make them. Uh, so if you if a branch hits them, it just flops back yeah. and forth. So I want to ask you too. Then along those lines, uh, I've seen a lot of guys uh, who are doing front end conversions, maybe getting a larger triple tree using upside down forks or using a beefier triple tree. I don't know if it's germane necessarily to this particular tank, but I've seen it done on others. Well, they'll actually have to put dents in the tank to yeah, accommodate, yeah, to accommodate a larger right. triple tree. So, is that something you might uh, might look into uh, as an option well, for that so, tank? So, you know, what, what we did when we started the tank, of course, is we wanted the tank for ourselves. We knew other people would want, and we actually have somebody on the West Coast who wants to buy ten of them from us, who does something sure. similar to we do. We, we haven't sent them one yet, but so what, our initial impetus was the fact that our normal builds for traveler bikes are R80 ST chassis that we take the front end off, and you know we 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 put the R100 on there, and we do lots of other stuff on it. But as far as the front end, we put the R100 GS front end on, which besides, of course, being being beefier. Um, and have it has a bob, top and bottom uh, cast clamp versus the stamp piece of shit that the R80 SDs and GSs came right. with, which also allows us to to drop the ride height and change the trail because they clamp around the tubes instead of on the top of the tubes. So when we're taking an R80 ST and making it into a GS, we're taking the back tire and changing it from an 18 to a 17. So right away we're changing the trail. That's right. And we're putting a, diff a different, the, the, the trail on an R100 GS is different than, than an R80 ST. It's actually a little longer, and so which makes it great to go in a straight line but doesn't make it as maneuverable true, in certain true. situations. And so a lot of times we'll drop the four 
books. So we've not encountered the need to go ahead and dish those out. Now, I'm talking to this to the same guy and about making me a couple of these tanks out of aluminum. The um, only reason I, if I'm thinking about that is we're helping a guy in Atlanta building a bike, and he wanted an aluminum six-gallon tank, and that, but still had the, it wasn't like the GS tank, it still had the correct bayonet mount at the top uh, rather than the screw-in, and so we had one made, and he said, oh, these are great, they're nice and light, and I said, yeah, but the first time you fall over, yeah, forget you know, about it. two gallons, yeah. you know, so, um, uh, so uh, my thought was at that point, it's easier for him to make tanks out of aluminum. He's pushing me a lot on this, and I, I'm, I'm, don't, I'm probably going to have one just to see if anybody's interested. I'll stick it online, and mm-hmm. somebody who probably will never ride their bike off-road will, would love to have one just to have one. Uh, but in any event, uh, I, I have approached him with a couple of other things. I've not gotten there yet because right now I'm trying to get consistency from him. I'll see you sure. tomorrow. Thank you, Murray. I'm trying to get consistency from him on the stuff that he is producing from me. So I ordered these five, and then if all these five turn out to be good, which so far they have, I'm going to turn around and order ten more from him. And then once I get, once I know that that he and I are on the same page, um, then I'm going to talk to him about some other things. So if there was anybody who wanted that, because I've I've certainly seen it, yeah. the upside down front ends because it's so much thicker. It's the receiver end versus the part that goes up and down. So right. it's going to be bigger. So yeah, we would we would consider it, and I don't think it would be difficult. The difficult part is getting him something that he can work off of yeah. in order to make what we want. That's the biggest, that's the reason I spent the money that I did to make what I did. I considered sending him a tank, but there were none. And I had a couple of new ones, but they were slated for other people's bikes. And I just said, ah, you know, even the U.S. Postal Service loses half the shit that they send. <laughs> they do, I know. So, you know, right. So I, I decided to spend the money and have one made and, and keep the last real tank I had just to be able to measure and stuff as I got shit from him and, and that kind of thing. So uh, I'm certainly amenable to um, to doing something. If there's a, if there's a couple people want them, then uh, I think we can figure that out here. There you go. Uh, and then, you know, make him there make, you go. make something for him. To, yeah, to, and it would seem like an aluminum tank might be a good guinea pig tank for that. Uh, it'd be a little softer. Yeah, we and, take a hammer and bash it. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yeah. Right. All right. right. So people are going to be hearing this, Nathan, and they're going to, uh, aside from a few of the questions I've asked, uh, I think the two most frequently asked questions are going to be, what is the general availability of these and how much are they going to cost? Okay, so general availability... should be fine. I mean, once I get, once I'm convinced of these two. And the other thing is, I have two of them that are going to be sold, and I'm not going to do anything until I send these out to these guys. And I've told both of the people who got them that these may require a little bit of hand fitting. Both of the guys said that they were more than capable, and that they, one of them had, had a PD tank. And as you discovered, they needed a little bit of tweaking mm-hmm. to keep them from rocking back and forth. Yeah. So I want to send these to these guys and see what my reaction is from now. Well, they say, oh, these things suck, or oh, these things are real nice. They weren't hard to fit. We have noticed that there is a difference in fitment between the R100 
and the R80GS and the ST. The clasp on the back for the ST is what is different than the clasp on the back for the GS. And yeah. we're having to use the R100GS clasp to make this work. Not really sure why yet, but so we're still experimenting with that. But once once I get a little feedback from some actual people who you know had them in their shop and put them on, then I will go ahead and, and order probably ten of them. And it takes um, a month, month and a half to, to the time I order them to the time I get them. All right. So I think availability will be good as far as price goes um part of it of course depends on where the oro is when we started this the dollar was strong now it's uh eight cents below it i think so uh you know our prices are changing but um when we sold these new we were selling them the, the bmw price was 1840 yep um we're going to come in below that um i'm not really sure where yet because i don't know what i'm going to end up having to pay by the time I get I order 10. He's, he's talking about giving me a little discount. He hasn't really, he hasn't, we haven't got that worked out, and I don't know if I have to have him do anything else. Fair him. enough. But, fair enough. But that, that, that's a good, at least a good idea on the pricing, and that seems totally reasonable. Um, okay, and then I'm just going to assume these are going to come then uh, lined, as you said, with the, tippet, with the maroon liner, and then primered or raw? Yeah, they got a real nice, almost shiny-looking gray primer. We've gone through three different primers from him. Um, he's finally got a primer that I think looks good. Um, it looks real durable. Um, and, uh, and and the more he, these he's made for me, the better they look. And he and all of them are pressure-tested before we get them. Good, so, yeah. Um, we've already we only had gas in a couple of them, but we you know when we started this, he said uh, I said he said yeah I can I'll pressure test everything that leaves here, and he wants my business and I want the tanks so you know we're both having to do the little the little give and take set up. So well, let uh, me say Nathan, uh, excellent work. I'm really glad to hear you've done this. I know a lot of folks listening are going to be excited. Folks want to find out, um, get maybe get a pre-order or whatever. Basically, either call you at the shop or drop you an email uh, via uh, your Box of Works website. Correct? Yeah, or they can go on IG and and send us a send Mikey a note or us a note on Instagram. But yeah, boxofworks.org um, or you know the shop number, whatever is. Uh, all, all right. Sure. So you you mentioned uh, the story, uh, if I'm uh, recalling here uh, correctly, Hell's kitchen in brooklyn where you first saw some of those slash twos so well no no so my dad my dad grew up in hell's kitchen i grew up in teaneck new jersey okay which is right across the george washington bridge and my dad worked at randy's garage um on saturdays and i would go over and they'd throw me a seven up and a carburetor and throw me in the corner and at lunchtime i'd walk down the street and bring everybody back lunch and then when my dad needed a hand i'd go over and help him do something and i just kind of was you know the guy friday on on saturdays at, the, at Randy's garage, and uh, that was my first introduction to BMWs. One of the reasons so many airheads are still on the road today is because of great parts suppliers and enthusiasts like Boxer 2 Valve. William and Edward Plam at Boxer 2 Valve have years of experience with the 247 airhead, dating back to their first repair shop and dealership in the early 1980s. Boxer 2 valve stocks and sources only premium parts and tools, so no need to worry if you're getting a cheap pattern or shortcut part. They simply don't carry them. Boxer 2 valve has extensively researched which parts are correct for your motorcycle. 
Just enter your year and model and you'll see only the parts that fit your bike. That takes the guesswork out of the ordering process. Real-time stock information that is also available, so no need to guess what may be on back order that could delay your project. Also, if you're digging into a repair for the first time, be sure to check out Boxer 2 Valve's video repair series. These cover both twin shock and post-81 models and are great tutorials that go step-by-step -step through a variety of repairs and parts replacement procedures. The video series is a great workshop companion, one I've used many times over the years. So for all your airhead parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Back with more from Nathan in just a bit. Right now it's time for another episode of Tech Talk with William Plam from Boxer2Valve. Our topic today, the top end reseal. We're joined by William Plam again, and our topic today is the top end refresh, meaning your push rod, tube seals, cylinder gaskets, uh, et cetera. If you've recently purchased a new bike or had one uh, in service for a while, eventually this is a job you're gonna need to do. Um, generally speaking, William, uh, for the hobbyist mechanic, uh, somebody may, and let's talk about maybe somebody who's doing this for the first time, uh, what should they know about digging into this job just right off the bat, generally speaking? Well, you're going to need um, an exhaust nut wrench to get that. You, you need to figure on getting that, and you want to get prepared with the, the new gaskets and some sealant. But it's pretty pretty common that you'll want to have to. It's very common that you'll need to. Um, replace the seals at some point in your ownership because they, 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 they do leak every so often. And then it, it would just otherwise more or less basic handle, you'll need a torque wrench and uh, it's pretty, pretty straightforward, but you do need, those are some of the prerequisites that you have. Yeah, and while we're talking about it, this would be a good time to mention uh, the Boxer 2 Valve video series. You cover this, I think, pretty extensively on the, on the 90 slash six. So we don't need to go into all the details here, but just generally speaking, uh, yes, if you're doing this for the first time, probably that's going to mean you're going to need to drop a few dollars on, on some tools you might not have. Um, there are variations on, on the top end, not a whole lot, but there's a few over the years. And I've noticed this, uh, especially in the slash six and slash seven series where things seems to change a little bit. One thing you have to be uh, cognizant of is the push rod tube size and then also the cylinder uh, base O-ring and then also cylinder base gaskets. So there were some changes and modifications, if I'm not mistaken here, that a lot of that really happened from the seven, mid-75 model run uh, upwards uh, into the early 80s. And I think once the 81 on, it was pretty standardized, but uh, earlier bike 75 that was a 16 millimeter push rod correct yeah the earlier ones up through 1975 uh production uh i don't remember which month i think 975 yeah um were 16 millimeter the the push rods were 16 millimeter uh diameter and then they went to 18 millimeter so there are those two different push rod seals for those and then um 
the slash five and slash six series, they used the aluminum gaskets between the, the engine case and the, um, and the cylinder base. Uh, they, they, those were also available and are still are available in different thicknesses. So you can change the compression ratio. Um, it, it, but that's was, it's not such a, a big issue anymore, but that's just a little side note on those gaskets. And, um, then they went to, uh, now, keep in mind that on all of the bikes, that the top two studs uh, are where the oil pressure comes from to lubricate the rocker arms. And so um, the gasket, when they use the aluminum gasket, that, that worked well to, to seal that area. And then uh, in the slash 7, they put an O-ring in that spot. And um, that remained throughout the end of the production, those top two O-rings. And then there was also uh, the O-ring around the base of the cylinder, kind of a, a larger O-ring. And those are synonymous with Nicosil cylinders. Okay. So that, when they went into Nicosil, that's where that big O-ring comes into play. So that's going to be pretty much 81 on. Correct. Okay. And so, uh, yeah, so that that's pretty much the deal. And the, there's a difference in the engine blocks uh, there, if you um, look at the two, you'll see that there's a little bit of a recess or different different shape in the in the block to accept the, the that O-ring and and that type of cylinder. But if you're putting um, an, an, like a let's say you're putting a like a Steven Rock uh, big bore kit or a replacement kit or something on a on a late '80s bike, for example. Um, it has an O-ring groove, or you're taking the cylinders from a, a newer model, and it has an O-ring groove, but your bike, the motor block is from, say, the 78, for example. Mm -hmm. you, won't, you won't use that O-ring. It won't fit. You, it'll, it won't, it, it's just not cut out for that gap. So you would, even if you had a, a cylinder that has the O-ring groove, it won't fit on the block that wasn't designed to take the cylinder with the O-ring groove. I hope that makes sense. It does, yeah. You can back. You could backfit yep. a newer cylinder on a older block, but not the other way around. So, okay. And let me ask you. You mentioned that cylinder base gasket that they stopped using in '75. I, what was the deal? I mean, it was there, and then all of a sudden they decided we don't need it anymore. How? How? What was the deal with why it disappeared? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> okay. You know, it went. <laughs> Maybe they, you know, because, you know, it always was, was good practice to um, assemble, even with a gasket, to put some se some sealant on the yeah, that yeah. flange. And so, you know, you're, you're, if you're putting sealant on the gasket, maybe they kind of said, well, gee whiz, why do we even need that darn gasket if we're just, if we're using sealant anyway, you know? It may, and, and there might be some truth to that. Yeah. Um, they, they, the gasket did serve, as I said, the purpose of the thicker ones, you could, you could lower, um, the compression. If you lived in a country that had uh, bad fuel and you couldn't get high high uh, octane fuel, you could lower the compression ratio by putting a thicker gasket in or by putting a couple of gaskets in. But I, that was more of a thing back in those days. I mean, I think I'm not sure. I haven't been all all around the world, but I don't think that that poor fuel quality um, is is really that big of a deal anymore uh, as it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned the, the sealant, and then also along those lines there, uh, the top two 
cylinder stud bolts uh, where they go in at the mm-hmm. top of the engine block. You mentioned that's uh, an oil passage there, uh, which yeah. uh, which lubricates uh, the rocker arms and, and everything inside of the uh, valve train and all that. You know, I took one apart just the other day, and it, whoever had it before me had used some kind of sealant, and it it was brown, and it looked like sort of what it reminded me of the texture and coating that you'd see like on a rotor or something, you know, kind of this, uh, slightly opaque Brown translucent, uh, goo, whatever they used. Anyway, I pulled this off. It was everywhere. It was actually even in, it wasn't blocking the holes, uh, for the oil, but it was in the threads and in the holes or, and in the threads in the cylinder stud, where the cylinder stud went in, and I'm just thinking to myself, geez, you know, I'm glad I popped this open, obviously, for one thing. But we should mention, if you're doing this for the first time and you are putting on some sealant, use it sparingly, especially when you're up there uh, on those top two uh, head bolts, because that's where the oil comes in, and if you just glob it on there, it's going to clog it up. It will. It absolutely will. And so it is very important to use it extremely sparingly there. And on the later models, you, you know, don't need much at all. Let those O-rings do their job. They're, they're, they're fine. So O-ring is a good way to seal something, but just a little bit of that on there helps, but you could do more damage than good if you uh, put too much on. Yeah, now I've been using uh, Dry Bond, I think, for a number of years, and there's some other ones. I think Permatex makes something. Uh, that's similar out there. Uh, what, what What's your sealant of choice when you're doing that? Well, I like to use a clear silicone for starters, and it doesn't have to be, uh, there's different brands uh, that make that, but it has to be a, a, a not, you know, not for sealing windows or something, it has to be an automotive grade silicone sealant that is that is the stuff we, I like the stuff that Worth makes. That's what we all, we have in our, uh, product offering. Um, that that's not available, uh, or you go to the parts store, like a Permatex or mm-hmm. some of those name brands. They, they make a very fine product that'll work just great. But I like the clear because the, the finished job looks so much better than if you're using black or that orange or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. It won't, it won't come oozing out of the, the gap there. Right. All right. Here's another thing I want to ask you about. So I've always wondered what's the best practice here, and I've done it both ways. So when you're taking the cylinder head off, are you a leave the piston in guy uh, and disconnect from the con rod or vice versa? What's your preferred method? And is there a better way or a reason to do it one way or the other? Okay. Yeah. So if if the goal is to stop oil from leaking, but uh, otherwise leaving the, the, the motor alone, you're just fixing the oil leaks, then I definitely think it's best to leave the piston in the cylinder and not, uh, and, and take the wrist pin off to do the job rather than pull the, um, uh, the piston out of the cylinder. That's my preference. Then uh, the couple reasons for that are, so first of all, you know, you take the cylinder head off and you kind of size up the situation. This, the cylinder walls look good. Um, uh, there's, you're not going to put rings in it. You're not going to do anything like that. And, and you 
if you made that decision, then I think that if you pull the Pistons out, you're opening up a potential can of worms because you're going to maybe get some junk in there. Um, you know, you, you're going, you're moving the piston past the point where it normally travels. You're dragging it over some, you know, maybe some rough areas. I'm worried I'm going to do some damage and I'm going to have to go back in there pretty soon and, and correct that. So I think you're safest by leaving the cylinder or the piston in the cylinder, just pushing it back just far enough to expose the wrist pin, then press the wrist pin out or knock it out depending on the model year and go about your business, put everything back together again. And also the other reason for that is that when you put the sealant on the cylinder, you only have a certain amount of time to work with. You know, you've got like, you know, maybe 10 minutes before the stuff starts to settle, set up. And in, in, it, when you're under the gun and you've got only so much time to work with, it's yeah. going to be a lot more straightforward to put that wrist pin in and get the clip on than it is to, to fiddle and make sure you get all the rings pushed back in at the proper spacing without breaking them. You know, and and uh, all these there's too many variables going on pushing the piston in uh, to the base of the cylinder when you're trying to uh, get the thing together before the sealant hard, hardens yeah. up. So you know, uh, I think it's more efficient to do it that way. That's my my thinking on that. That makes a lot of sense. I'll tell you a funny story talking about you know saying you're under the gun. I uh, years ago, I don't, we don't know, three or four years ago, whatever. I just I did just pull the. Um, cylinder off and left the piston on the conrod for whatever reason i don't know why anyway i didn't have a ring compressor so i had my wife come out and help me um you know she's got nails and smaller hands and so she could get her hands around the the rings and compress and i'd push you know and uh we got it on but i can remember you know saying to her you know hurry up hurry up this the you know the ceiling's gonna dry we got Got to, you know, she don't rush me, don't rush me. You know, we got into this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, I'm not a mechanic. You know, it was pretty funny. <laughs> we eventually got it down, and she was able to log some shop hours in the garage, which she was happy about. So, uh, okay, yeah, good, good to know on that. Uh, then this brings up another question. So, you're when you're doing this, for, people are doing this for the first time. They're gonna pull the valve, uh, the head off. They'll see the valves. They'll see the piston. They're going to look, they're going to be black as night. And they're going to say, good grief. I've got all this carbon build up uh, on the valve face, uh, all this carbon on the crown of the piston. Um, what's the best way to get rid of that? Do you need to get rid of it? Can you do it when the piston's still in the cylinder? What's sort of, there's a lot of variables going on there. What's your really preferred method on, on decarboning or tackling that? So it depends on the severity of of the of the carbon. You know, there's going to always be some buildup on the pistons and in the cylinder heads. And if you here again are just going in there to do a reseal, you then you need to just kind of make a determination: is this within within normal, or 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 will this still run? But you'll still have some. You'll always have some carbon in there. I think you can you can do pretty well. With just uh, uh, lightly scraping uh, excessive carbon off, but there's a couple of things to consider. You don't want to scratch the alum any of the aluminum parts um, that kind of will create hot spots. If you if you do, I think uh, you want to try to get if 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 it, you it, it, in a sense you don't probably even 
have to decarbonize everything. It depends on how much is in there, like I said. Um, you can go ahead and uh, scrape some of that off very carefully. Uh, what I've seen done before and I've done sometimes in the past is r- run a little bit of uh, grease around the, the piston on the edge. Oh, yeah. That'll help to, if you do get in there and scrape, it, it'll help to um, captivate the, the any little particles. Yep. And then yep. you can push the piston down, and then you can wipe all that grease out, you yeah. know? Yeah. And so and you can also, that's, that's something to think about. It's an idea of, of what you can do. Um, you, you can use a... a, a a rotary brush on the end of a drill or something to to get some of some of that off. Just really depends on on how crazy you want to get and, and yeah. the severity. Yeah, we sh- we should. Got a lot of carbon. You might want to look at fixing some potential leak or, or oil leak issues within the cylinder valve guides and or rings. Yeah, good point. We should say if you do put uh, a brush on the drill bit, please use brass. Yeah. And eye protection. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well said. Uh, okay. Another thing you'll often I often see this in forums. Um, people will if they they've got the uh, cylinder off, the piston still captivated uh, inside of there. You're looking at the conrod, uh, and you can see inside of the engine for the first time for a lot of guys if they're doing this or whatever. And another part that you can replace in there that isn't too terribly expensive or difficult to do is the bearing shells uh, for the connecting rods. So I guess my question here is, is that a reasonable, I'm already in there, might as well do it job or what? What what are you looking for for Conrod wear? And is it, is it, uh, the follow-up question there is, is somebody being just a little bit too anal by saying, well, I'm just going to replace it anyway. Kind of, what are your thoughts there with those uh, shell bearings? Well, if this is a if this is a bike that you newly acquired and you don't know what it's been through, yeah, um, the the going in and replacing the connecting rod bearings is kind of a good sort of litmus test for the whole um, condition of the motor because the connecting rod bearings are the last thing in this in the oil uh, flow circuit. So if that bike ever had a situation where it was run low on oil and starved oil, that, that'll show itself on the connecting rod bearings. So if nothing else, taking it apart and finding the bearings to be in good condition, you, you, it's kind of peace of mind knowing that, oh, wow, yeah. this motor is pretty solid. If, it, if the connecting rod bearings are in good condition, you can bet that the main, red, main bearings are good, too. That's a good point, and I so should – go ahead. So that, that's kind of a reason that I see to do it. And then, and then, uh, you know, but if you, if you know the motor, you've had the bike for a long time, you know, and you, you know the history of it, you know that you never ran it low on oil, then you, you could just leave well enough alone. That's what I think. Good point. Yeah. Uh, the, I'm with you 100% on that. You're getting a bike from a previous owner who didn't keep maintenance records or, you know, you just know nothing about the history I, I'm going to be 100% in accord with you and say it's a good idea to replace those. That's what I've done uh, on this uh, 77S I bought. I mean, I just knew nothing about the previous owner. He had the bike for 20 years, but, um, you know, he didn't keep a, a receipt or a log or anything. So, And it's relatively inexpensive. I mean, let's, you know, 
I don't know. I think you can get a set of bearing bearing shells for 50 bucks. You need new bolts uh, to put those in. And then yeah. there's a special, what is it, 10-point star wrench to get those off. So uh, all right. things considered, yeah. it's, it's not... Um, if it's a, I'm in there, I might as well replace it job. That's not too expensive. Uh, we should also say uh, while you're in there, always good to check uh, for uh, pitting on your lifters. Uh, those pull out pretty Absolutely. easily. Uh, you all, you mentioned a good point in your videos. Don't use a magnet. So you don't magnetize those lifters. Uh, a dental tool works really well. A little pick or something uh, always works well for yep. me. Let me ask you though, what, contributes to pitting or wear on the lifters? Uh, I can only attribute it to, to inadequate lubrication. Um, uh, that's what I, what I, I think it may be, um, the oil, not change the oil well, uh, well enough or frequently enough. Um, because that is, um, the only thing I can think of, you know, I, have, I haven't really seen over the years any correlation between years like, you know, this year was mm-hmm. more, you know, had problems and this year didn't or anything like that. But I think it's, I think it's a, a, a lubrication issue. That's, that's the best I know. Yeah. I mean, I was a little surprised this uh, S on 77 S I'm working on right now. I mean, just last, I guess last night or the other night. Uh, I pulled all the lifters out. All of them were fine, except for, I can't remember. It might have been the left side intake, uh, right side intake. I can't remember. All three were fine, but one of them was <laughs> was pretty pitted and chewed up. I mean, obviously, I replaced it, but I'm just thinking, why yeah. would it be just this one when you say, and that's my thought, too. You know, if it's improperly lubric- lubricated, you would think you would have some sort of problem across the board, but one never knows, I suppose. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a strange, strange thing. Uh, I guess a lot of that has to do with construction. Was the metallurgy correct? Was it hardened properly and all that kind of stuff? Uh, I would assume. Probably so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So moving on here, uh, push rod seals, when you're putting those on, there's all kinds of people, all kinds of people have different, theories on the actual push rod tube seal. Some go in dry. Some prefer a, the lightest sheen of oil. Others will say put a very light sheen of dry bond or, or sealant on there. I've always just gone in hard and dry. That's how I like it. So what what's your thoughts on there? Yeah, the, that works too. Um, I always, or for many years, have always been putting on a very, very thin film of the same silicone that I use for the cylinder base. Mm-hmm. And my thinking there is that, 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 that rubber is under a lot of tension when it goes in. Um, and I, and I'm thinking that, that it helps to work as a lubricant when, when you, when assembly kind of similar to putting oil on there too, mm-hmm. is another way to do it. But if everything is dry and clean and you've got a little bit of the lubrication pro- uh, properties of a wet, uh, uncured silicone and the additional sealing properties uh once it hardens it, it it seems like a win-win and so that's that's worked for me and uh everybody has their own take yeah. on that but that's that's what i do and that's my my thinking behind it yeah that makes a lot of sense i've done it both ways and fortunately um i've never really had a a problem 
you know, other than, you know, time uh, and the and the tubes just getting hard and needing replaced. Uh, I'll, I'll just mention a couple things here just while we're on the topic. Uh, the cylinder gaskets uh, between the valve head, uh, the valve train, and the cylinder base, those always go on one way. They fit on one way. I pulled some off my R80GS. Uh, somebody else had done some work on the bike, and I was trying to track down why I was having some extra valve train noise. One of the first, and I still haven't figured that out, but one of the first things I noticed was one of the gaskets was put on uh, incorrectly, uh, and so the push rod was actually rubbing against the uh, gasket, and r- there was some wear yeah. on the push rod. So <laughs> when you're doing that, those gaskets, yeah, go- yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure you do. Those go on one way. Um, yep. Cylinder stud bolts. That, I think, is the one dreaded problem I always have. You know, I'm sure you, I think I remember in your videos when you do this, when you're make. When you're getting the head on the for the last time and you're torquing down to 25 foot-pounds uh, or new, whatever your Newton meter reading is, uh, and you get to that last click and that last setting, boy, the last thing you want to feel is a stripped thread there because it's kind of a pain in the ass to go back and, and fi- fix that um, stripped hole. I'm sure you've done a few of those over the time. So... For those out there listening who may have just done this or they just found out, you know, I got a stripped one, what's, can you talk them off the ledge here and say it's not that bad? What's the best way to do that repair? Well, the def, definitely the best way to do that repair is to use a, uh, what's called a time cert. Okay. And don't, don't use a helicoil. That would be my, you know, do not use a helicoil. Um, I've actually had to go in and repair some motors over the years that had, somebody had used a helicoil. And so the big difference is that the helicoil is like a big spring, so to speak. It's, it really is a, it is a, like a, like a spring. It's a wound piece of extrusion or some sort of steel that has a thread pitch, but it, if you grab one end and pull it out, it, you can just yank yank it out. They're not very very strong. The Time Cert is a, a really great product. They're um, it's a it's a machined steel sleeve that's threaded on the outside and the inside. Um, they're made in the United States, which is cool, and they're worldwide. I think known as the 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 best uh, w- way to repair a thread and. If you, you, we don't sell them, but you can, I, I get them like on Amazon, has a whole place, uh, all the different sizes. They even make oversized outside diameter. So if you have to go in and fix something that's been fixed once before in the repair field, like for example, helium coil, that they, they even make that. Um, really great product and uh, works not only for the cylinder studs, but any other uh, thing that it might have pulled out. That's my only, the only thing I use on. I swear by them. Yeah, I want to. Has that happened to you where you've been down to that final torque sequence and then you just have that all hell moment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've, I've felt what that's like. And also, you know, there's also a situation where, oh boy, right at the end when, you, when you're when tor- you torquing it, it's, um, you know, you. You, if it's your bike and you're 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 going to be keeping an eye on things, uh, you're you're the one riding it. 
if it starts to just feel a little bit sloppy, sometimes I think you could probably just say, okay, I'm just going to run it, you know, rather than get into this big can of worms because you always take it back apart again. Um, if, but if it really, if it really spins through, then you, you got a choice, but you, you need to go ahead and, and repair it. But just be really careful. I'd rather go a little bit lighter on the cylinder head torque than, uh, mm. than hips back, um, if that's what it takes. Because uh, the torques are, are really just a guideline anyway. Yeah, good point. Good point. Also, kind of in the OHEL category, uh, removing the uh, header pipes and the header nut. Uh, you covered this really well in your videos. And I, it's always one of those things, if, especially for a new owner or you're getting a new bike. Uh, again, that's one of those telltale signs from the previous owner. Did they think to put uh, copper paste or nickel based? Um, see, um, what am I trying to say? Yeah, any C's. Any C's. Like thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, did they think to do that? Now, I've had a couple where the header nut came off, but it was a little grabby. And in hindsight, I probably should have cut it off but it was moving and I didn't. And I bought one of your thread files and thread measuring uh, devices and went back and I was able to save the threads on there. Uh, and if, you're, if you do run across that and you're doing that, um, it's always good to buy new uh, uh, head, header nuts. You don't wanna use an old one. And so I was able to save one. The threads were a little galled, uh, but I got the file filed it down, bought new header nuts, I saved it, and that that was good. So uh, what's, generally speaking, what, how do you, if you're taking that off, how do you know when to stop? That's where my confusion was. I was like, should I keep going, or should I just go ahead and cut it off? I mean, if it's seized, obviously. But was I wrong? Obviously, in hindsight, I got it off and it was fine. But it was moving, but it was still grabby. So what what's your dividing line there in doubt cut it off yeah it, that's all actually probably the, the the best answer yeah when in doubt cut it off but uh, but basically when you first knock the nut the nut loose um if if you like w i can totally envision what what you went through with that because i've been d down that same exact path and yeah. you, you kind of you keep going and it's 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 moving, but it but it, there's a, <laughs> it, it's taking more force than you kind of like. But yeah, it's still moving, you know. Yeah. Then you kind of can, you know, that that that, that makes sense. And you, you a lot of times you you can get by with that. And then, and then I agree with you. you want to replace the nut if you if you can when you put it back together again. Um, but if you get to the point where you actually have to use a lot of force, then stop. Yeah, you know, yeah. if you like need to need to tap the tool with a hammer or you know, you're, you're really like, you know, exerting a lot of force on the tool, then don't just stop what you're doing and cut the thing off. Yeah. That's it. That's it. If, if, under normal hand pressure, you're still turning it. Mm, you got a good chance of, of pulling it off. Yeah. But and yeah. And the thread files. Yeah. And the thread file will, yeah. will get those back in shape. Yeah. I mean, that was the first time I had come across that. So I really felt like it was a roll of the dice when I did it. Uh, but thankfully, uh, I didn't have any big mountain to climb after that. All right, let's wrap this up by saying uh, we've covered some really good topics on the on just general top end maintenance, uh, reseal and stuff like that. Again, this is kind of a general question, but 
uh, for the home mechanic, the home hobbyist, somebody who's doing this for the first time, realistically, what can you determine? We mentioned the connecting rod, bearing shells uh, is a good indicator of engine health, previous engine health. What are some of the other things a home mechanic or a new mechanic can do when they've got the engine apart to look at it to say, okay, you know, I'm n probably not going to send the head off necessarily right now for, you know, new valves and guides or stuff maybe, but, you know, what are some things the home mechanic can do while they've got it apart to make some reasonable assessments on the, on the health of things like the valves and stuff like that? Definitely, the, the, like we talked about before, the oil deposits and sort of, that sort of thing is going to tell you a lot about um, the uh, amount of leakage you might have through the piston rings and or the valve guides. And also discoloration in the cylinder head area. You know, a lot of times you'll have always a little bit of yellowing of the, of, of the castings, but if they're really, really dark or burnt looking, then you know that that maybe the bike didn't get as many oil changes as it as it might have liked over its life so far. The the color of the oil, the, the looking for sludge, that's kind of an indicator, I think, of uh, what you should look for, as well as the the general set. But there's really not much more. I think that the um, the bearings and the lifters are probably the best uh, telltale sign of what the bike's been through. Perfect. Perfect. All right. Well, look, William, as always, good visiting with you. And now we've got some great top-end refresh tips and techniques to put in our back pocket. Thanks. So I'll tell you one more one more little thing, too, yeah. is that when you do the cylinder, the, uh, the, um, any kind of removal of the cylinder heads, uh, my recommendation is to avoid taking the exhaust system apart, especially on models up through, well, really on anything, model levers, too, like, don't you don't have to take the exhaust system apart at all of the connection joints. You once you get the exhaust um, uh, nuts loose and you've got that dealt with, leave the mufflers, leave the crossover pipes, all that stuff intact, and just get a helper and move the whole exhaust system up forward and out of the way. It'll save you a lot of headaches with uh, rusty parts and and additional fasteners that are going to break and the gaskets on the later models that you need to deal with. So anyway, that's one more little tip I will have for you. Look, that's a good one. I'm really glad you mentioned it. Uh, and I had this in my notes uh, to mention, so I'm glad you remembered it. And it's funny because I remember seeing this in one of your videos, especially the crossover pipe on a slash six or slash seven, those uh, Allen nuts and clamps on the crossover pipes Nine times out of ten, they're rusty, and they're just being held on by uh, God's good grace, I suppose, until you put a wrench on them, then they fall apart. And so I can't remember which bike I was working on, but I had watched, saw you mention this in a video, totally escaped my mind. I go, I'm taking the header pipes off. First thing I do, I stick a you know five, millim uh, five millimeter Allen key in the crossover pipe, turn it. And of course, the whole thing just breaks apart. And um, yeah, yep. then there, there you go. I'm in uh, fifty dollars or whatever it is for a crossover pipe that I, you know, had I remembered that, I wouldn't have had to have bought it. So, excellent, uh, yep. excellent tip. All right, William, thanks for the visit on that. Thank you. Thanks again to William and all the crew at Boxer Two Valve for supporting the program. 
and for providing quality parts for the 247. Now back to our chat with Nathan Mundy. Let's rejoin the conversation with Nathan talking about getting his first bike. And Amo Precision, which was a well-known BMW shop, was in Bergenfield, New Jersey, which was the next town over. That was Kurt Liebman, and he was well-known as a, as a racer uh, for years, a BMW airhead racer um, around this country. You know, I, I kind of had kind of in and out of stuff, but I never, I didn't get my first motorcycle until I was 18, and that was as soon as I got out of the house, and that was at Bridgestone, that had a little, 250 Suzuki Hustler and a 500 Triumph and a BSA and eventually worked my way into getting my first BMW, which I bought from Charlie Hawk at Hawk Cycle Sales on R69S, which I still have pictures of with an Avon fairing, and I drove the shit out of that thing for years. So what was the appeal of the Slash 2 uh, back then? Uh, what separated that from the other bikes you you had uh, previously had and what was uh, also available uh, I then? guess because I'd seen them at, my, at, at the gas station I always had a I always had an interest in them and um, you know uh, it was a BMW and BMW always had that mystique about being you know a great motorcycle but everybody thought it was weird because it had a weird front end on it and, and the cylinders all stuck out uh, so you know it's just it was just something that appealed to me as a youngster and took me a while to finally work my way to. When I bought my first R69S, I had a 500 Triumph that I traded in to Charlie, and it was $850 for this thing. And I worked in a in a girl's dorm, big girl's dorm, lunchtime, seven days a week, cleaning dishes. Uh, and I made about five bucks a day. And I, my uncle lent me the 350 bucks, and I had to pay my uncle every month. I had to pay him $50 a month. Uh, so I was making $35 a week and I, so I had to pay him 50 bucks a month to, to, to pay for the, for the money I borrowed him. I paid him the first time and he said, forget it. He just wanted to see if I was actually going to pay him back or, <laughs> yeah. or, 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 just, right, say, right. or just say no. Like my father did to him. My father was the youngest of four brothers. And he said, every time I lent your dad money, I never saw it again. So <laughs> now was know. that, you mentioned the uh, dorm, was that on the OU campus? It was, yeah, and I can't remember the name of it. Uh, I'm going to say, yeah, it might have been, uh, I, I can't remember either, although I have to admit, I when I was in school there, I did probably spend more time than I should have in the uh, girls' dorm. I think it was Jefferson well, Jefferson Hall, if I'm... Uh, uh, <laughs> it was great because, yeah. you know, you're right. We met all kinds of women, and a lot of times we just go from downstairs to upstairs, and then we go back downstairs <laughs> later on. Uh, in fact, I still see some of those women on Facebook. Oh, that's great. Uh, it's 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 got interesting over the last couple of years. Some of them have did, gotten back in touch with me. So. Did you ever happen to make a connection in later years uh, with uh, Kent Holt or the folks at Holt BMW or, you know, Recycle, Mark uh, okay, Seidel's so, nearby? So, so Kent and I were in school at the same time. And at the time that Kent and I were there, Kent was making leather clothes for people like Alice Cooper. He was, a, he was, he was making clothes for famous people and computers had just come out and he was actually able to, to, to mix and match colors on motorcycles and he started painting um, when we were still in school. There were a couple other people around that area uh, who were BMW guys too. Um, I wasn't best friends with Ken, but we knew, we knew each other um, and he was there at the same time I was and we've touched base, you know, probably two or three times in the last 40 years. Um, so you know, we know of each other. Uh, he's still in Athens, um, as far as I know. 
he had a Ducati dealership there also. Um, but yeah, I, I, Ken, as far as Mark goes, I don't know if Mark ever went to school there. I know Mark. Yeah. I talked to him a couple of months ago, but I don't know if Mark was a was a OU. Guy I, I don't. <clears throat> I don't think yeah. so. But yeah, yeah. that was yeah. you know that's where I bought my first uh, Airhead when I was in college. There was a short wheelbase slash five, and what a treat! You know, unbeknownst to me, little did I know, Ken Holt and Mark Slidell uh, Slidell were both. Uh, you know, 50, 60 miles uh, from me in a round circle trip. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better, uh, couldn't ask for a better situation to have a support uh, team of guys around there. And they were, they were really helpful and accommodating to a young guy in college who didn't have a lot of money. Uh, and so that's, for me, that's kind of what started my interest in the bikes was I, you know, I just saw the uh, slash five and just thought, wow, what a cool looking bike. And then, you know, just sort of fell into the uh, circle of people who were I found to be really helpful and went forward from there. I didn't know you had that uh, Athens-Ohio connection. That's pretty neat. Well, you know, one of the things we try to do in the shop is the same thing that people did for me when I was a youngster, when I was yeah. in college. You know, you'd, you'd want to fix your bike, and you know, so they'd tell you, get here early on Saturday, and you'd get there, and and you'd, they'd say, all right, get in the corner and do this, and then you'd go pick them up lunch and this, that, and at the end of the day, they'd go, okay, let's let's do this, that, and the other. So we let a lot of people in here. We give them a lift. Uh, they work on their own bikes. Uh, we help them out. Um, we give away a lot of stuff to people. You know, I got lots of used parts, and um, I think that what goes around comes around. So, uh, and my shop is the type of shop that, um, you can walk in when somebody's working on your bike. That's the guy you talk to. It's not the service manager who tells you uh, insurance regulations don't let you go back in the shop. You know, you talk to the people working on the bike, uh, and you know, uh, you you get the service from us that you don't get from a big business, and that's uh, personal service. Most of the people coming here become our friends of one sort or another because. You know, we keep in touch with them all the time. Hey, this is Nathan. It's your Monday morning motorcycle call. Because, you know, every day when we're working on their bike, if we don't send them emails or talk to them during the day, you know, we touch base with them. And, and people like that, they, they want to be they kept, kept informed. Even when you tell them stuff they don't want to hear, they'd rather hear it before they came and you handed them the bill. Then, you know, you, you don't want to spend their money without talking to them. And, and you know, I had a guy in here today who he's bought, I built him a bike and he's bought two other bikes for me. And he needed a front rotor, his wife's ST that she bought, and it was bad. So I said, go upstairs and grab one. He went up and grabbed one, and I told him what to do, and he swapped it out. And I said, all right, see you later. He goes, what are you? I said, nothing. You know, it was, it, it, bikes only put a 1,000 miles on the bike. Obviously, it wasn't in good shape when you bought it from <laughs> Yeah, me. right, so, right. You know, yeah, it's, uh, that's, and that's the way it's, it should be. I mean, it's not. I'm not giving him a new part, but I'm giving him a good part. He did the work himself. He wants to learn more and more about the bike. He's got this sidecar conversion I built him. He bought. He got this uh, R100 GS, and his wife just bought an ST, and they're driving gravel roads together. And he's a forester, and he wants to travel around the world on his motorcycle with his wife. And so, you know, it's just we meet a lot of interesting folks. Um, we've done a lot of. Uh, Work for we did a we built a bike for Dan Auerbach for the Black Keys. We didn't know him oh, yeah. on the ground when the whole yeah. thing started. Uh, I had a bike for sale, uh, I think on Craigslist, probably ten years ago. He somebody called me about the bike. They were in California. And they said my buddy's going to call you. Guy called me. He talked to me about the bike, and we made a he made a decision. And so as I say to everyone I talk to, what do you do for a living? I said I'm a musician. 
I said, well, I mean, you know, I just play for this little band. And I said, I said, who is it? So the Black Keys, I said, oh, man, I just saw that interview with you and that girl. And I can't remember the magazine. He said, yeah, wasn't she hot? And three years later, uh, he produced her album. Uh, his wife burnt down his house, and he left and married this other girl. So in the meantime, uh, it, my buddy, so I, I built R.E.M.'s first recording studio. They're all my friends. Bill, their drummer's in here all the time. He's got a four-wheeler. A guy named DeWitt Burton is their guitar tech. Well, he was also... Uh, Dan's guitar tech in Europe for six months and so I didn't know when we started that we already had a connection from DeWitt and R.E.M. and all the rest of the stuff but we just met, uh, we just just interesting folks, they're yeah. all motorcycle people uh, some of them are congressmen who are Tea Party people who, you know their, uh, their outlook on life is diametrically opposed to mine but, you know, I tell them when they come in the door, you know, I only talk politics or religion to people I agree with otherwise it's a waste <laughs> of time, yeah. this is a motorcycle shop uh, and so, you know, and people come in, I go, God, did I just see who I thought I saw? So, well, it depends on who you thought you saw. And I said, yeah, that's him. Well, what's he doing here? Well, I'll tell you what, I had this little space for rent. I wanted $500 a month for it. He offered me 1000 I said, let me help you move in. Yeah, right. It, so it's all about, you know, my girlfriend gave me a bunch of shit about it. And I said, hey, it's, it's called business. You know, he's not, he's not murdering people. I just don't agree with him. And he doesn't agree with me. We just agree to disagree. So, well, but... Go ahead. We we meet so many interesting folks. Yeah, I, I've I've got to ask you. Uh, you know, I have a, a very thin connection uh, to Dan Arbach. Uh, I was a traveling musician for a number of years as well, and when we used to go up to Ohio to play, uh, he would the guy I was playing with, uh, who actually, uh, and folks will be listening to the podcast in the theme music, a fellow called Jimbo Mathis. I was out with him for a number of years. Anyway. Uh, this guy would come see us and when we were up in Cleveland and, uh, I, I didn't know who he was and he'd always show up at the shows and come sit in and play some guitar with us. And I met him periphery on the periphery a few times that way, but, uh, you know, nothing other than a, Hey, what's up, you know, clink of the beer bottles. And, you know, fast forward a few years later, come to find out, you know, who he was and, you know, what he was working towards with, uh, the black keys, um, which is you know, and parenthetically, what a great band. I mean, I just love their sound. Uh, what I, I have to know, though, what bike did you sell him? What did he buy? Well, what happened was I sold him an R60. Okay. Two, All right. And then a friend of mine in Nashville put a sidecar on it for him. Uh, and then he brought me the bike back, and I did a dual disc, one of our dual disc conversions on it for so it would stop. Um and then he took it back, and I've never met Dan. I have his number. I've talked to him on the phone. One of my guys delivered the bike to him. Um, I've not met him personally, but you know we've spoken. And I, I sold I sold some bikes for him. He had some R69s that I sold for him several years ago. And then again, uh, my buddy Dewitt, uh, who's a buddy of his, a couple of occasions was supposed to haul a bunch of equipment up there. I was going to ride up there with him, but it ended up not happening. So I haven't talked to him in years, and I, 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 I can't say he's a friend of mine, but sure. he's an acquaintance of mine. Seems like just a regular guy. I enjoyed talking to him and, uh, you know, enjoyed building the bike. He said the sidecar rig was his daughter's favorite bike, and he has since gotten into old Harleys and Panheads and, and a bunch of other stuff. I don't know if he's still doing anything with the BMWs, but I have seen. I did see a picture of some of his bikes at a show, and one of them was the sidecar setup that uh, we did for him. So that's uh, that's my only connection to uh, to Dan. That's still that's still a neat, interesting story, though. So, uh, Nathan, you mentioned uh, a little while ago about a conversion bike you have now. Uh, there are some folks uh, who are listening, 
are wondering, well, what's a conversion bike? So essentially uh, a slash two frame with a later model 247 engine. Uh, in your particular case, I think I've seen this on your website, one you've had for quite some time. So tell me about uh, your conversion. Well, that particular conversion, that the gray bike that I have, it's got probably 300,000 miles on it, is a bike that I bought uh, already converted. It, it, it was a conversion at the time. Um, I bought it from a friend of mine, and then over the years I've changed it a lot. But that got me started um, building them. I built many of them since that point. But it's a to me, it's a great way to take uh, to modernize a vintage motorcycle. Give it uh, electric start and 12 volts. A motor that doesn't have to come apart every 30,000 miles to have the slingers done. And then we do what I think is a very nice looking uh, dual disc front end for it. And we also do a modified rear drive where we can run the rear drive off later bikes because we're putting higher horsepower in. The original bike's uh, highest horsepower was the R69S, which was 42. We're putting 70 horsepower motors in them. And so um, you you need something that's a little beefier and something that's got a wider variety of ratios. Uh, the pre-70 bikes had two short gears for sidecars and two road gears whereas the later bikes have five different gears you can you can put on there. So um, to me, it's just, you know, the average guy doesn't know that it's not the original motor. You know, it's got the round side covers off the early uh, Slash 5s and all on them. It's, you know, headlight shell, if we use that off the Slash 5, same shape as the one on the Slash 2, just that it has the speedo and the tack in it instead of just the speedometer. Um, so, you know, to me, it's a great way to take a pile of parts uh, and make them into something useful. And they're great for sidecars because one of the issues with sidecars was the bike was underpowered to begin with, and now you're putting a sidecar on it, and then you add the sidecar to it, and, and once you get it going, you can't stop it because the brakes were, you know, maybe okay for the time, twin-leading shoes, but it's certainly not sufficient for uh, zipping down the road and, and, and pulling a steel sidecar with the person or something. And so, you know, with all those things together, we're able to make a – we're able to update the bike, you know, which is what we wanted BMW to do for years. They finally sort of did it with the R18. And interestingly enough, three years ago at Barber, a friend of ours who works for BMW came to our booth and said, I need you to sign these uh, release sort of forms or something because I'm going to bring the, the head of design for BMW in Europe and the head of BMW North America to your booth. I'm going to ask you some questions. I want them to hear these, hear what you think about it. One of the things I said to them was, hmm. It was very. It's nice to see you getting back to your roots, you know, kind of Art Deco and all that kind of stuff, because that's kind of where we all started. Everybody thinks of BMWs of my age. Like I say, I'm in my 70s. I think of the Earl's front end bike. I said, but on the other hand, when I started with BMW in the 60s, they were owned by enthusiasts. So now you guys are owned by a bunch of people who are just worried about the bottom dollar. You know, you've gotten rid of a lot of dealers who, who made it through the lean years, and now you're told them they need a separate building and a separate showroom. And, you know, these are the guys that got you to where you were, and this is what he wanted me to tell these guys. And one guy spoke English, and the other guy, they had to interpret. And I could tell you that the interpreter guy, who was the guy out of Germany, he didn't want to hear what I had to say. <laughs> but this is what they asked me, and this is what I felt. You know, I've been, been, with them, been, been doing BMWs at that point for probably – close to 50 years. And so, you know, I, I, it was nice for me, for me to be able to say to them, hey, you know, uh, it, it kind of sucks that you fucked the people that that got you to where you're at now. Though I am nice, it is nice to see, you know, 
that uh, Mark Huggett was making reproduction parts for these bikes started 20 years ago because BMW saw people making them, realized there was a market for them. They realized there was a market for the retro bikes when they saw Triumph do it and other companies do it. So they came out with the R18, which is, you know, this giant bike, but it's it looks like, you know, looks like a, uh, an old motorcycle, an old BMW. So, um well, they may, Nathan, I'll just say this. They may they may not have wanted to hear what you had to say, but uh, they probably needed to hear it. Oh, I agree. And I thought, and I think this guy who, who you know, is kind of a rep for them in this country wanted to, I mean, here, I don't know if it changed anything, but, um, you know, the fact is there's a thriving, if you want to call it a cottage industry, but there's a thriving industry on airheads. I mean, they're, they're, they have to be the most followed bike in the world. I mean, how many bikes can you make a phone call on and have parts for that were made before the war? Everything that BMW made, uh, first bike, the production bike they made, 1950, 51 year, 5051, which were copies of pre-war civilian bikes. And they made those bikes up until mid-55. They came out with the swing arm bike. But you can still buy parts for those bikes. And then Euro and Chen Zhang and Nepper and Rattier all made copies of stuff. Um, uh, you know, they're junk for the most part, but they're copies of what BMW did. They're mostly plunger frame stuff um, because there's a market for them. Ural sells a lot of motorcycles. I was a Ural uh, repair shop for a while. Uh, we don't do much of it anymore. I have put several BMW motors in Urals for people. My German friends say what a waste of a good motor, but that's another whole story. <laughs> anyway, so, you know, um, it's a it's a dependable appreciating purchase. There isn't a lot of stuff you can buy these days that at the very least you'll probably get what you paid for it. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you know, a lot of these bikes, uh, especially since the pandemic, you know, our 50 slash twos were selling for in nice shape, maybe $12,000 three years ago. It's not uncommon to see them go 20 or 22 now, you know, they've doubled in value. I mean, uh, what else is out there and what else can you, can you buy and enjoy and drive and still, you know, feel like you've made some kind of investment. I mean, as old cars are like that, I've been buying some old cars for the same reason. Uh, I like old cars. I had a foreign car business, and and I want to I want to invest my money in something I can enjoy and uh, maybe get my money back out of, or maybe make a few bucks when it's all said and done. So, um, you know, yeah, I'm I'm with you right there. I mean, that's that's what at least I'm able to tell my wife when I'm buying a bike. <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, that's uh, that's that's a valid. Uh, it is. Well, you know, argument. here's a per. I mean, here's a perfect example. So I, I, not to get off too much on this, but I bought one of the new uh, Triumph Scramblers, the 1200 XE. I bought that uh, uh, like a year after it came out. First, first modern motorcycle I ever owned. First brand new motorcycle I ever owned, which I'll never do again. But I wanted to do it one time. And I had that bike uh, for about uh, two and a half years, three years, maybe. No problems with it. It was a lot of fun. Uh, I enjoyed the experience. I've never had, you know, an 80 plus horsepower bike with cruise control and uh, everything, you know, ride modes and all that stuff. I really enjoyed it. Uh, but about uh, six or eight months ago, I saw a original paint 78 uh, RS uh, in gold come up for sale. And <clears throat> I didn't really think twice about it. I sold the Triumph and bought that gold RS. It only had 6,200 miles on it. It was just an amazing uh, time machine example of that motorcycle. And that's one thing I 
said to Michelle, my wife, I said, look, you know, we're trading a depreciating asset for an appreciating asset, uh, which kind of speaks to what uh, you were mentioning there. And she said, uh, honey, let me give you some money. <laughs> I guess not. But anyway, it was worth yeah, it. Yeah, you know, well, it, it, in the end, it all worked out good. But yeah, I, right. I, I follow what you're saying there. And, you know, guys out there, girls out there listening, uh, you, you need to make an argument to your significant other or something like that. Uh, listen to what we were saying here. It'll help you make a good case. Well, we'll have to end it there on that wonderful pearl of wisdom. Next time in part two of our conversation, we'll dig deep into Nathan's custom GS builds and modifications on the Mono and Paralever GS series. So until then, thanks for joining us. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.